0: Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today a new friend of mine. I mean, we we kind of go way back um, in terms of we met like, I think, 11 years ago, just briefly. We've kept in touch a little bit over social media. I've been following uh, what Aaron's been doing for a while. He's been following what I've been doing, but this is the first time we really had an extended conversation. And look, guys, I, <laughs> I only have guests on that I think are going to be interesting people, interesting conversations. So I was excited about this one. Uh, Aaron seems like a super interesting guy to me. I was blown away at how good this conversation was and how thoughtful and authentic and... A mature, a spiritually mature, Aaron was not, not that I was expected him to be immature, it sounds so bad. Sorry, Aaron, if you're listening, but I was after, after I got done with this episode, I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot wait for this conversation to go live. So it is now live, I can't wait for you to engage this conversation. If you are a worship pastor, worship leader, um, songwriter or I would say a pastor or a leader in charge of kind of like hiring the next worship leader. I, I'm so excited for you. I I think this conversation is I I want every church leader to hear this conversation. Anybody who's the slightest in the slightest way involved in the worship experience at church needs to hear this conversation. You need to know who Aaron keys is. He has been a worship leader for over 20 years um, with some, well-known people, well-known leaders. Um, he uh, he knows the kind of Christian celebrity culture. Um, uh, he's extremely intelligent. He has a theological degree from Northern University and he also opened up a worship school called Ten Thousand Fathers where he is training. Um, worship leaders to not just lead worship, but to pastor and disciple people into the holiness of God. And I just, I enjoyed every second of this conversation. If you would like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology Raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month to get access to the Theology in the Raw community. Uh, thank you for those of you who are supporting the show. It really does mean a lot and helps keep this show going. I would also encourage you to check out the show notes for information on Aaron Keyes and 10,000 fathers. So, without further ado, let's get to know the one and only Aaron Keys. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with a friend from a distance. I mean, this is the world we live in. I feel like I know. I, I feel like I've known Aaron for a, a while, even though I, this is literally the first time. Well, there was another encounter that we had that you may not even remember, um, but I don't even know if it was like a face-to-face. It was still distance in the same room. So I, I was at. Um, this is going so far back. I'm not even sure if I got my facts straight, but I was at Cornerstone Church right at the tail end of Francis Chan's kind of tenure there when I believe you came out mm-hmm. to interview yeah. or so you came out for something there. That's where I first heard your name. Is yeah. that
1: is that Was that you? <laughs> yeah, I think that's when we met because we were really praying about um, if we were supposed to join up with Francis, come out to Cornerstone, um, work with Jim, Ellison, you know, Jim and Sherry. Um, and right. we loved our time there, loved Francis, but didn't feel, despite what we wanted, didn't feel like God was calling us. Yeah. It's funny, like three times over about three years, we came out to California thinking maybe God was leading us out there because we'd been in Atlanta for a long, long time. I mean, since I was basically 20 years old, I've been in Atlanta until we just finally moved almost a year ago to Colorado. But but yeah, that was where we met because I think you were running the Bible College. Yeah, yeah. And we connected just a little bit. And then I've, of course, followed you since then. So that was, I don't know, you tell me, maybe 10 years ago, the whole thing with Francis. I got the
0: Cornerstone in oh9. I think it was yeah. maybe right around within that year, so probably ten eleven years ago. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's what I would guess. And and so I connected with Francis from from leading worship for several events that he was speaking at, sure. and. And then I brought Francis to, to speak for some of the more like cushy events that we led worship at. So like <laughs> we would go down and leave worship in the Bahamas every year, you know, and it's, they wouldn't like pay you, but they just like put you up and take you scuba diving. Yeah, and yeah. so we did that. That was Francis and Lisa came on that. That was fun. So, yeah, we were just praying about do we join up. So um, anyway, we didn't feel at peace despite what we wanted. And And actually, I'm glad that we. That we didn't move because he ended up stepping down within a few months after that. Um, but yeah, I followed you. And then I actually even reached out to you, I think, uh, a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago when I was in seminary, because we were taking a class with Joel Willits. I remember that. Um, yeah. and, and he's so amazing, you know. And um, anyway, your name came up and in my cohort, so many people just expressed how grateful they were huh. for the work that you were doing. And I think at that point, I wasn't even up to speed on all that you had been doing um, kind of off of my radar. And and I just kind of started digging back into it and thought, man, this is really special. And so to get to chat today is, I've been looking forward to this for a long time.
0: Well, me too, man. I don't know why it took so
1: long, but um, yeah. So did you finish,
0: <laughs> did you finish, so you were doing a degree at North Park then? Is it via distance or... Um well,
1: actually, I was at Northern. He was kind of adjuncting for one class. Oh, okay. I don't remember what class it was. Um, but yeah, he was just adjunct for us that class. Yeah, I did an MA from Northern Okay. Um, because for, I think, five or six years, our worship school with the Thousand Fathers was partnered with Northern. We've switched yeah. that now to Duke. So now we're joined up with Duke Divinity. Uh, but for, yeah, for a while, I mean, we probably sent 40 or 50 students to Northern to do wow. master's work there.
0: They better partner with you. <laughs> You're feeding them Bro, much needed I students. I know. <laughs>
1: it's a little lopsided partnership.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go But For people who don't know who you are, why don't you give us just a snapshot of your journey, what, what your okay. kind of ministry trajectory, and then uh, I would love to just banter around about worship, Christian worship, the worship scene and evangelicalism. I'm sure that'll that'll take us in in some interesting directions.
1: Yeah, I don't know if we have time for all that, but we'll we'll do our (laughs) best. Um, Okay, I'm 42 years old, live in Colorado Springs as of one year ago with my wife, Megan. We've been married 21 years. We have four sons, one in college, one going next year and two in middle school. Um, I'm a worship pastor here in Colorado Springs at New Life Church. um, And for the last 20 years or so, I was the worship pastor at a church in Atlanta called Grace Fellowship Church. So, uh, people might, you know, probably haven't heard about Grace, but they've probably heard songs like Good Good Father and Build My Life. These songs came out of our church because there was this thing called House Fires that came out of our church that really um, became God just like He just put wind in those sails and it went all over the place. It was really awesome. Hmm. So, for the last 20 years, uh, we were in Atlanta at a church called Grace and it was a beautiful like greenhouse for apostolic entrepreneurial kind of leaders to come and not be constricted to the walls of the church but kind of be empowered to go do what's in your heart. So it was a really beautiful place in that, you know, that their main vision, their biggest vision for your life wasn't like come and volunteer in the church, but like how do we unleash what's in your heart in the world? And so about 15 years ago, uh, we opened up our home so that we could start training worship leaders because um, leading worship, you know, guys like were doing. that's all well and good. But I was getting all these phone calls from pastors after the events like, hey, look, we got singers, we've got bands, but we don't have anyone that leads worship like that and, hmm. and leads worship with scripture first and foremost. And do you know anyone else that could do that? And so... Uh, at first, I was I was sent out everyone that I knew and trusted, and quickly I ran out of people that I both knew and trusted. Um, and it was like, what? How? How do we do this? Like, how? How do we raise up people? Because it felt to me like the fields are white and the workers are few, you know, and the worship space. And I guess we should pause there because um, worship, you know, underwent like a little bit of a renewal, a reformation, late '60s Jesus movement. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we, you know, we went from singing songs like a mighty fortress is our God to I love you, Lord. And so when all of that happened, there was a beautiful move of the spirit, I think. And the guys out in California, all these hippies are getting saved. Um, some of them say we're going for worship in the presence of God. And they launched the Vineyard Movement of Churches. Some of them go, we're we're going to go verse by verse to the Bible. They launched Calvary Chapel. And and so kind of streams split off from late 60s, early 70s and worship just picked up steam. Like before then, you might've had a music minister in church, but there was no such thing as like a worship pastor huh. or a worship leader. You'd have choir directors, you know, um, people like that. But this, so the, the worship role, like we understand it, is really about 50 years old. It's really young. Huh. And there's there's no such thing, you know, in the, in the first 2000 years of the church. Um, and obviously there's nothing in the New Testament about worship leading. Um, so what is so normal for so many of us, we've just grown up singing how great is our God and we've grown up singing here I am to worship. Like that's not normal. Hmm. Um, and it's not historical. So there's beautiful stuff that's come out of that, but there's also a little bit of like alarming stuff that's come out of that. So for instance, you know, we're the first generation ever to assume that because someone can lead us musically, they should also lead us spiritually. That's never There's no biblical precedent for that. There's no historical precedent for that. And it's totally normal for us now to hire people for musical competency and then have to fire them a year later for spiritual defects in character, you know, Um, because they have think about like, you've got a doctorate, like most pastors, most leaders have done serious theological training, cultural training, historical rootedness. Worship leaders haven't done any of that. Like there is... There is a well-worn path for for being a leader in the, in a church today. You go to divinity school or seminary or you 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 know you do a curacy if you're in the Church of England or whatever. There's all these different very familiar paths. There is literally no path for worship leaders. Hmm. And so what they do is they they work on their guitar, they work on their voice, they get some good-looking clothes, and they get on stage and they do a lot of damage because we're, not only are we the first generation to ever conflate musical gifting with spiritual authority, we're also the first generation to give untrained, um, unformed leaders as much opportunity when we gather together as we give to the theologically trained, spiritually authoritative, you know, relationally proven uh, pastor of the church. So for the first time ever, you've got this convergence of both of those things happening. So untrained people with massive opportunity. So, I mean, a worship leader probably gets as much time shaping what a community of faith believes about God themselves, their role in the world, et cetera, uh, our relation to our country and things like that. Like the worship leader who hasn't had to do deep digging on any of that stuff gets as much time. And I would actually maybe even argue like, because they're communicating through creative media, like music, like songwriting, or whatever else, they almost have an upper, upper hand even in shaping what the people come away with, you know? I don't think most people are, are driving home humming the sermon, you know, that they're, they're kind of thinking of that song that you just ended with or whatever. And so, because the worship leaders haven't been given the training, but they have been given the task, they've been given the platform, Uh, we've got a really interesting thing going on where you just have a lot of untrained people who are way out of their depth and you hear it, you know, you hear it in their songs, you hear it in their prayers. Um, It's pretty deplorable theology a lot of times. Um, And it's not, again, it's usually not the senior pastor that's really mucking things up. Mm -hmm. It's usually the worst pastor. So how can we help Worship leaders, not screw this up so bad, you know? (laughs) And so you do need theological training, but you also just kind of need like life training. Like Hmm. how how does your marriage not fall apart? How do you, how do you do all of your life? And so that's why we said how, you know, we'd like to open up our home for leaders to come be trained, not just, um, uh, you know, until then, until this point, 15 years ago, I had done internships where I was like reading books and meeting with guys and whatever. But we went from internship to discipleship. So internship is like, come meet with me. (laughs) Discipleship is come follow me. And we said, come into our life and see all of it. So they lived in our house. This first few years, we just had different groups of guys live with us for uh, six months or a year at a time. Um, They came on the bus with the band. They were up with me on stage at church. We'd send them all over town to lead worship for events. And that was really cool. But then we started getting more and more people saying, hey, I've never been trained, but I'm, I've got five kids. Uh, my wife and I have decided it'd be worth it for me to come live in your basement for six months and I was like, maybe we should tweak this model. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> like uh, this isn't really working. No, I would not recommend you do that. So we switched from the residential thing about about 10 years ago. We switched from come live with us to let's do this like grad school. Let's do it in cohorts. Come for a week at a time. And then we'll meet every week on Zoom. And we'll walk you through the curriculum. We'll train you. So now that's, that's 99% of worship school experience is people come. Just like grad school it's 18 months long they come for three different week-long intensives and then there's weekly assignments all throughout so like i was saying earlier that is that's partnered up with duke divinity school so we're all our coursework at Ten Thousand fathers where the six months we first focus on the character of a worship pastor the next six months Mm -hmm. is the craft and competency third six months is really the calling or community of a worship pastor like how to go and make disciples and multiply this in your city and all that kind of stuff. All of that coursework is part of several different master's degrees from Duke Div. So um, an MDiv, you can get an MDiv from Duke now with a certificate in worship, mm. um, and we're a big part of that journey. You know, so you come through Ten Thousand Fathers as, as part of that degree. You can do also do an MTS um, or an, a Master's of Arts in Christian Practice. Any of those from Duke, you can get a worship certificate, which is really cool because. What we basically are, what we become is a para-seminary, you know, so we're coming alongside seminary doing what I think seminaries were supposed to do, but just don't. They don't do formation. Um, they do information and they do it great. You know, I love partnering with Duke, the number four um, number four religious school in the world mm-hmm. as of this year. Um, but they're, they're probably still not. I mean, you might get to take a class with Howard Laws or Ellen Davis or... Um, you know, Lester Ruth or Jeremy Begbie, but you're probably not going to um, hang out with them at dinner and yeah. have a glass of wine and, and get to share your life with them. Mm-hmm. So we aren't trying to do six months on Ecclesiastes <laughs> um, at Tendhousa Fathers. But I do think worship need, worship leaders need to spend six months in Ecclesiastes, you know. Yeah. So I think that they give you that side of it. We give you the other. And I think that the end result is leaders who are built to last and aren't just gonna be kind of getting less and less relevant as they get older until they eventually age out of worship ministry, which is basically how most of it is now. You know, uh, youth is like probably our biggest idol in worship culture these days, except for maybe ourselves. Um, They, what we wanna see is a whole generation of worship pastors rise up who will be elders in their churches Mm -hmm. um, long after they're done being musically relevant. You know, they'll be musically cheesy but they will be spiritually authoritative. Um, so this is what we want to see. So it's it's called 10,000 Fathers and Mothers Worship School because in 1 Corinthians 4, sorry, this is a long answer, but I'm <laughs> going to land this plant. Uh, I'm trying to go fast. <laughs> uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, even if you had 10,000 teachers, oh, right. you don't have many fathers, but this is what I've become for your sake. So imitate me is like imitate Christ. So the whole thing being like, We've got more teachers than yeah. than ever in the worship space. Great teachers. Like you can go you can listen to Francis. You can listen to Louis Giglio. You can listen to whoever. Pick your pick your teacher, you know? And and Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, they had the exact same thing. They had celebrities. They had Apollos and they had Barnabas and Paul. They had like the they had the whole constellation of superstars. And he goes, And you don't have what you need. Wow. Miracles, the most spur and the least maturity of any of the New Testament churches yeah. so I think it's just helpful to to not mistake even spiritual supernatural activity and big-time cultural celebrity don't mistake that with fruitfulness um, and with actually getting this right that's know? so good I was so wondering we're the, trying to focus on the, I
0: was wondering where the name came from that's a really cool uh, that's a, that's I love that that's a, such a fantastic idea um, so you've been doing you've been doing ten thousand fathers in for about five years. Uh, how, how did you get connected with Duke? No, I mean, okay. Oh wow. Well, how did you get connected with Duke? I mean, they're as you said, a super world renowned, high powered school. Did you have a personal connection, or you just reached out to him? Yes,
1: I did. Yeah. So a friend of mine from Atlanta, he came to our church. He was an Old Testament professor um, at Candler in Emory, a, a, a good school, a yeah. UMC school in Atlanta. Um, And he wanted Emory to snatch us up from Northern because I was saying, look, I love that we're partnered with Northern, but the hope was like, we'll send you a bunch of students and you send us a bunch of students, you know, because I'm just trying to figure out where are the leaders that need to be trained. Like I was saying, like earlier, I think before we hit record for for most of our tenure, we've, we've graduated over 400 students in the last 15 years. Most of them came to the school because I met them somewhere on the road, yeah. and that just meant I was gone all the time, you know. And I don't really want to do that anymore. I have zero ambition to go be some cool like touring worship artist. It's so boring to me. Um, so we, we we I was talking with Brent, Dr. Brent Strong and he was like i think you should partner up with candler so we met with the dean there and tried to make it happen they weren't interested well he transferred to duke and became an old Testament Uh, professor at duke and so as soon as he got there he was like (laughs) there's something special happening with this thing you need to come see it and so greg jones the dean Mm -hmm. at the time um at duke he and brent came down and spent a couple days at our house and then i went up and spent a couple days with those guys with begbie and lester and some of these just To me it's some of the world leading thinkers on uh beauty and art and liturgy and worship and how do we do this well (laughs) like to me these are the guys i've known for a long time i haven't known them but i've i've followed them and thought these guys are such a gift to the church um so so i spent a couple days with them and eventually i asked greg the dean i was like what are you doing here like why? how did you even find us? We're this tiny little thing run out of our living room. You know, we don't even have a campus. Yeah. And he said, we've been asking, we've been looking for places where God's moving in ways that are surprising. Oh, and wow. this is surprising. That's awesome. Like what you're doing here is surprising. And it was just so fun because we, at that point, we'd probably been doing it for 13 years. It, there wasn't a lot that was surprising about it to us, you know. <laughs> it was just kind of normal to us. Um, but that was that was where the partnership um, developed with Duke, and we're so excited! Our first cohort launches this fall.
0: Yeah, uh, for those of you watching, <laughs> I just pulled. I've been icing my back leg because I've got um, like the sciatica. As I was called. <laughs> yeah. So I, did, I tried to do it subtly, but I realized that for those watching the video, are like, "What did you just pull out of your butt?" I'm like, "No, I'm sitting on an ice pack." So I just, anyway. I just wasn't podcasters are that. all confused. Anyway, um, I so. W- 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 Oh, man, I've got so many questions. Uh, when you're – what are kind of the big picture things that you want to teach worship leaders? But beyond, I guess, like, you know, obviously get your own life in order and pursue holiness and repentance and mm-hmm. maturity and all these – but, like, when you're when you're teaching them, okay, you're going out to lead God's people in worship. Here, mm-hmm. Here is what you need to do. Do you have kind of a top, like, big picture pieces of advice you give them, or is that not really your Gosh. focus or –
1: no, we had some of that. It's just, you know, when we start working with leaders, we don't we don't let them pick up a guitar for six months. Uh, people used to show up at my house like night one. Hey, when are we going to jam? You know, I'm like, oh, God, please do not subject me to your need for being approved of and your insecurity and identity crisis. Like, please don't do that. So we have to do like six months of character work before we can even get to where them playing a song is because they have something to give instead of something to prove, you know? Um, so we have so much work that we have to do. So because of that, I don't spend a lot of time addressing the stuff on the surface, like um, how to pick a set list, you know, how to get better at vocals. Like we, we give people coaching. We assign them to coaches and we introduce them to places where they can work on those tactics. Ta- mm-hmm. But what we really focus on is the the ground underneath that stuff, where it's all coming out of. Um, and the later we get in the process, the more visceral we do get granular. So, you know, in track two, when we do songwriting, um, we I, I just took classes at Berkeley. I took their stuff up in Boston on songwriting, and I just tried to take the best stuff from all of that hmm. uh, curriculum and distill it for worship leaders. You know, for And just saying, like, you don't need to write, you don't need to be a great songwriter, but you should be able to articulate something for your community to express the response to what God's doing there that's going to be unique to every different place. You need to be able to bring that in the same way that, like, you know, for our anniversary coming up this summer, um, I better not just hand my wife a Hallmark card that's, like, got some little roses or red poem written in it and not actually write my own heart there. Like, she doesn't care about the, the card stock. She cares about the connection and, and why do I, what do I love about her and what do I see in her and what do I want to call out? I feel like um, other people's songs will only ever be Hallmark, you know? So, wait, do, like, you, do you
0: encourage worship leaders to write their own worship music for their local context? Is that.
1: Yeah, for sure. We don't only encourage it, though. We empower it and we entrain it. And that's a that's a huge difference that um, people just think, oh, you come to our school and get encouraged or inspired. And I go, no, 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 no. Watch YouTube for that. Go to a concert for that. You can inspire thousands of people at once, but you can't empower them. Even Jesus couldn't. Like Jesus spent years Just pouring into, well, these three were the closest, and then there were 12, and then there's 72, and then there's 120, and then there's just the crowds. But I put zero confidence in a crowd to actually, like, be faithful to the call of Jesus. You know, like, the crowds are so volatile, and and they just turn on Jesus from one moment to the next. So the men, the the people that changed the world and turned it upside down were the people Jesus invested his life into. So what we're trying to tell worship leaders, the first big paradigm shift is this, like— First, worship leaders lead songs, worship pastors lead people, mm. and we don't need any more worship leaders. Who cares? Songs aren't fixing anything. If they, w- if they were gonna change anything, it'd be changed by now. We have 210,000 songs in CCLI. It's not changing anything. So let's um, get our heads out of our butts and stop pretending that our, our song is gonna change the world. It's not. Discipleship will, but our songs mm. won't. The second thing is, um, if you the, the, they have to answer this question. If you lost your ability to play music today, would your church recognize you as a leader tomorrow? Yeah. And usually, Wait, can you the say that again. No. That, that's wow. Say yeah, that again. Like, if if you lost your ability to play music today, or to sing, would your church still want you to lead them spiritually? So, because most worship leaders were put in leadership uh, not because of their depth in God, their faithfulness, their fruitfulness, their ability to make disciples. Their ability to shepherd and pastor people they're put out there because their ability to sing um, that is very that's a house of cards and we're seeing what happens when the character defects and those kinds of leaders uh come out we're seeing it not just in worship leaders by the way obviously yeah. we're seeing this in any big shot leaders when the competency is off the charts and the character hasn't kept pace watch out because the, the dominoes are going to fall and tons of people are gonna get hurt, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we have to train people in both of those things. So with 10,000 Fathers, it's really that 18-month deep dive on personal transformation that we hope results in cultural transformation. But to finish answering your question, um, uh, you know, over the years, as I've connected with so many leaders and and worked with so many leaders, there's tons of stuff that I do end up saying, you need to think about this, the practicals. Here's the tactical, like, Try this this Sunday kind of stuff. So all of that content, I created a different training platform, and that's called Mere Worship. Mm-hmm. So, in the same way that uh, Mere Christianity is like C.S. Lewis, I'm in no way am I <laughs> trying to put myself at <laughs> that level. By the way, it sounds like the most arrogant. C.S. Lewis and I had this idea. It's like, <laughs> like, but what he, <laughs> what he did in Mere Christianity was take these brilliant, um, you know, positions and abstractions. That most people aren't gonna, uh, most average people aren't gonna go read deep, deep commentary on all these things. So he just made it like bite size. I mean, they were originally just radio talks, right? Yeah. For the BBC, that became the book. So it's like, for mere mere uh, worship, it was like, how? That I would normally teach. It doesn't fit anymore in ten thousand fathers. It's too. That content's gotten too strong. It's like. Too dense, it's too robust. I, I don't want to put a bunch of like practical tips and and tricks in there. <laughs> um, that's all now in Mirror Worship. And where 10,000 Dozen Fathers is the 18 month tuition, mm-hmm. you know, MDiv accredited stuff, Mirror Worship is just a monthly subscription. It's nine bucks a month, you know, it's cheap. And there's hundred. there's tons of videos, me teaching all these little five, 10, 15 minute things. Um, and then we meet on there and we talk about it and we, we brainstorm. So that's a pretty cool like yeah. growing community of either people who want to do 10,000 Fathers but haven't been able to yet, they can't commit, or they actually graduated from 10,000 Fathers but they want to keep thinking progressively and how do we not just um, kind of get in the status quo.
0: So it's a community of worship pastors um, who want mm-hmm. to have an ongoing conversation with other people that are trying to, for lack of better terms, maybe change for good, uh, the worship scene in, in kind of evangelical churches today. Um, that's yeah, really cool. one person at a time. That's awesome. How, how would you, to, to take to step back and big picture stuff, I mean, how, how do you, I guess, I mean, you've been in this world now for a while, 20 plus years. Um, what are your thoughts on, this is going to be a broad question, so so you can kind of take any, any direction you want. What are your thoughts on just evangelical churches and worship in the last 20 years? Like, when you were 20 years old and who you are now, have you have you changed? Um, have you seen just what are the pros, what are the cons, you know? Um, I mean, you've kind of touched on that a little bit, but... Um, mm-hmm. And help us, I guess, maybe peek behind the curtain on the Christian worship scene. And, and what does that look like if we were able to peek behind that curtain?
1: Yeah, well, uh, none of this... I hope none of this comes across as like an indictment. It's more of just a confession. Because the stuff that I've seen, good, bad, and ugly in the in the worship world, I've seen in myself mm, too. So yeah. it's not like, oh, they're awful. I'm right. great. It's not that at all. Like we're all just these, <laughs> we're all conflicted messes, you know. Yeah. So you get a bunch of them and give them millions of dollars, uh, things get tricky. So uh, good grief. What have I seen? Uh, one would be. Uh, an inordinate tipping of the scales towards subjectivity away from objectivity in our worship. So hmm. I mentioned going from mighty fortresses are God to I love you, Lord. That's yeah. a shift from objectivity to subjectivity, yeah. right? So I think and this isn't you know, empirically proven or anything, but my hunch is that if you go back through most of the hymns that have lasted a couple hundred years or the early songs of the church, anything like that, there's a lot more uh, uh, objective Mm-hmm. Stuff that you're praying and articulating than subjective. So again, a yeah. mighty fortress are God, that's that's just true whether or not you're feeling it. You know, it's true whether or not you've been unfaithful this week. Um, I love you, Lord. Well that depends. Like, have you? Do you? Yeah. You know what I mean? And and so I think There's been a big shift away from objective truth about God, about what he's done, about his plans for the world, all that stuff. It's just true, like the character of God, the faithfulness of God, articulating that. um, There's been a lot less of that and a lot more, like crazy more emphasis on our response to that. So Mm -hmm. these songs, it's amazing how many huge worship songs actually say nothing at all about God. It's all about I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that and I do this and I, so I surrender, I worship, I love you, I adore you, and there's a place for all of that. Yeah. But when all that we're doing is the response and there's we're never actually articulating what we're responding to, hmm. I just think uh, well, one of those requires study. Uh, you know, you actually need to study God to be able to write freshly and articulately. In new ways about God, um, but you don't need to study God to have new poetic language about how much you fill in the blank. You're gonna raise a hallelujah. Okay, great. It's an interesting song, you know. It's a huge song, and there's not one thing in it about God. Um, I mean, the whole thing hmm. is about how awesome we are. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna do this. And I'm going to do that, and then you're going to hear me do this. And so there's like so many big songs that are like, I'm never going to stop doing that, and I'm always going to do And the problem is the people who wrote that do stop. They end up walking away from faith altogether. You know, it's there's well, like I can, a I lot can, of I – can't,
0: I can't sing most of those songs because I don't surrender all. And I feel like I'm being dishonest, you know, um, I, it's easy for and I sound like gosh. So I'm 45, and I the more I talk, man, I feel like I have that I'm becoming that crotchety old Christian. You know that we all couldn't stand growing up, but you know I I um it's easy for right. me and actually spiritually nourishing for me to sing the more objective songs. And the older I get, and the more I realize the depth of my inadequacy. And now I have a, instead of, you know, when, when I was a f- Christian for two years, I had two years of, you know, sin as a Christian, I'm wrestling. Now I've got 40, no, 26 years. And it's like, my word, you know, thank you, Jesus. It's kind of like, you know, in, it's in Paul's last letter when he says, I am, I am the chief of all sinners, you know? um uh-huh. I feel that, you know, and, and I, and I don't want to overly, I'm not that reformed anymore, sort of, you know, so I, I don't, it's not that I'm a worm and always, you know, <laughs> but like, I, I'm just ah. have a more realistic perspective on my pursuit of God and I cling to the fact that his loving kindness pursues me all the days of my life. Like, were it not for that, I would be done. I would, as the hymn goes, you know, um, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I can sing that all day long. Um, and mm-hmm. he, you know, God, you shackled me with your grace and I don't know, like I, um, and again, I, I, on on the other hand, I do you know you read the Psalms and you do have both, right? You do have objectivity and you do have subjectivity yeah. too. So I don't want to, I don't want to say all of those are bad, but I do I like what you. I mean, I kind of I like <laughs> the fact that you said it. I don't like the content of it. You know <laughs> that some of these songs that are more subjective, which okay, that that in and of itself is is okay in balance, but sure. when it's not wrapped up in the objectivity of what we are pursuing, that that's that's where it becomes a little problematic I, i'm also concerned i would love your thoughts on this the um the and i you know i, I don't know if this is a, this might be offensive to some people but the kind of like you know jesus is my boyfriend um t- kind of songs and, and i've gotten you know people push back on on that or whatever but my wife and i have this running joke i'll hear her, you know singing a song and i'm like is that for towards me or jesus Right. And she laughs and like, I'm like, well, I, cause I heard you say that about me like five minutes ago, which I <laughs> love. I've my heart. And now you're singing a, I think it's a worship song, but it's the exact same. Uh, lyrics, you know like oh, yeah. And there's some yeah, that yeah. I, I, I wrote a blog about it. And I've just quoted some of his lyrics and I'm like, dude, I, this is great material on Valentine's <laughs> day. Like, you know, and people are like, well, are you know, it's the same thing. Our pursuit of God. I'm like, well, it kind of isn't. I mean, I, it, it, there's analogies, sure, but it's, mm-hmm it's our modern Western view of romantic love is not what the Bible's talking about. Like that, Exactly. You know, um, we're not, yeah. our sexual desires are linked to our ultimate need for God. Um, but we're not going to have sex with God. We're not having sex with Jesus. <laughs> the, the love is not romantic in the modern right. Western sense. So I don't know. Am I, am yeah. I, um, is there anything there?
1: Is that, is that me being overly being oh, there's a lot here? there. <laughs> there's a lot there. So, I mean, T- think about this, In uh, well first of all, you mentioned song, Psalm 45, which is a weird, song. it's a song written to Jezebel, okay? <laughs> it's written from a, about Ahab's uh, wedding to Jezebel, so that's a weird one, um, and I think Boy. if we actually looked carefully at the Psalms, we would see it's different than we think. So <laughs> in the Psalms, you do find the whole human experience, but only two times. Does it say anything like, I love the Lord, really? or I love you, Lord? So Psalm 18.1 is, I love the Lord, my rock. It goes on to all this stuff about the Lord. And then Psalm 116.1 is where it says, I love you, Lord, for you have you know, inclined your ear to me when I call. So twice, in, in 150 songs, does it say that? And um, Christopher Block was a professor we had in seminary, and he, he pointed that out, and he said, I love this. He said... The psalmists weren't quick to assume that they loved God well, but we are. So because we sing it all the time, surely it must be true. You know, like we don't tell lies in church. We just sing them every week. Like I surrender all, like I love you with all that I am. No, you don't. Like look at your life, you know, like you're absolutely deceiving yourself. You're not deceiving God. Um, so this is why I think, you know, the longest conversation Jesus has with anyone in the Bible, the longest book in the Bible, it's all about worship. Like, it's critical how we worship, because, you know, broad brushstrokes here, when worship goes right, everything starts going right. And when it goes wrong, everything starts going wrong. And the, and the trickiest part is when the people think it's going great and God says it's not. So the first picture of worship in Genesis 4, half of it's unacceptable, Isaiah one, God says, I can't stand it. When you lift your hands and burn this incense, mm. I actually sacrifice to God. And, and, and Samuel's like, for this reason, the kingdom's gonna be torn from you and given to David. Like unacceptable worship is a common theme in the Bible. And just because we mean well, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that God, God's stoked about this. And so, you know, when Jesus says, you gotta worship in spirit and truth, Worship it in reality—that's big. And then Hebrews twelve twenty-eight is um, since we're receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, let's worship acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God's a consuming fire. So I think any conversation around like I, I just want to nibble on Jesus' ear and uh, <laughs> Jesus for my boyfriend—all that stuff—like has to be. Put- <laughs> Sorry, this is raw. You said raw. No, it's wrong, good. Right? <laughs> okay, you can bleep any of this out or just edit. I don't care. Um, any of that has to be put into that perspective and that panoramic understanding of historically, what does it mean to worship and honor God? Like, how, how do we do that? And I think there's just a lot of chronological kind of snobbery, like generational snobbery. Like, there's a lot of songs that came out, you know, 20 years ago. And this goes back to one of your earlier questions, like, what's shifted since I started and to where I'm at now? What have I seen? Um There's a lot of, like, uh, we're the ones. Like, we are the generation. Mm. Uh, Let us be the ones. And Mm. that just ties in with all the rest of our kind of impatience and self-absorption and all that stuff. But, man, I think, like, what God wants to do in our generation is probably beautiful, but we're probably not, like, God's answer to the cosmos, you know? Um, We might raise God's answer to the cosmos. Like, we might. uh, We might actually, but... But usually we're just like so obsessed with ourselves. And so this gets into kind of the third the third semester of worship school where we we teach people growth is one thing, reproduction is another, and if you never recognize the difference between your own growth and the need for you to actually multiply what God's done in you. You don't need to multiply you. We don't need more of you. It's just that people need to see the life of Jesus worked out in someone like you to get a vision sometimes for how it works, could even work for themselves. Until we make that shift, we'll just keep thinking it's all about us. And even worship is all about us. Like, it's really crazy how many songs, I mean, count sometime at church, like, um, not to pull you out of just the bliss and the ecstasy that I'm sure you experience every second in corporate worship now, but like um, take a moment and count how many of the lines are actually missional, you know, like they're actually for other people or for the world or for the nations. Cause when you read the Psalms, there's like tons of missional stuff in there, which is fascinating because it's thousands of years old in a highly tribal time. Um, there's not other ancient religious literature that's like that. Mm-hmm. It's about like, all the nations will will see and everyone will come to the to Zion or whatever yeah. like all the other religions and all the literature is all very tribal like you would expect. and there's some of that in the Old Testament of course. but there's also a lot of beautiful missional stuff. So Psalm 67, right? God bless us, be gracious to us, cause your face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on all the earth. Hmm. And then that's verse one and two. And then the verse seven, the last verse is like, God blesses us so that the ends of the earth may yeah. fear him. So just like Israel like loved being the blessed and favorite, well, usually loved being the blessed and favored people of God, but didn't really want to like be the blessing and instrument of God's favor to the rest of the nations. We're just we're just like that. And so our worship music is pri- is primarily and predominantly about what Jesus has done for us. So He's welcomed us, He's washed us, He's forgiven us, He's loved us. But we're supposed to actually become like him and that we welcome others, we forgive others, we pursue others, we love them. But we divorce, like we divorce all that uh, missional stuff. And that's the reason in Isaiah 1 that God comes down so hard on that worship is unacceptable because the next verse says you, you haven't taken care of the orphans and the widows. Um, you haven't, you have dissociated this one aspect from this other, hmm. and it doesn't work like that. You can't just worship in spirit or truth. You actually have to do both. Yeah. And it's so easy to find worship in spirit or truth.
0: Well, I just realized this. You mentioned Isaiah 1, and then you have Jesus in what, Matthew 15, where worship, or when God criticizes worship, it's often linked with the behavior that's not following it. Like worship right. and behavior just are intertwined. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, old well, duh, obviously, but I— I just wondering if we really believe that how would we approach worship, maybe even how would worship leaders or worship pastors Because um, i i I don't know when's the last time I've heard a worship pastor or leader give any kind of thought on obedience that should correlate this next song. hey, we're gonna sing about this if anybody has sin in your life, you know now's the I, time to invite god to to you know address yeah. that if uh hey, come see us afterwards, confess your sins um uh, yeah. get help, you know, so that your worship isn't in vain, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, don't, I don't know if I've heard too many yeah. warnings like, hey, make sure you're not worshiping God in vain right now
1: because that's really dangerous. <laughs> right. Well, so go back to the whole, like, just, I mean, there is Song of Solomon in the Bible. There yeah. are a couple mentions to loving the Lord, you know, in the Old Testament stuff. But put it back in the uh, context like today, if I told my wife all the time and even saying it to her that I loved her, but I never actually served her. Or made time for her, or listened, or sacrificed for her. Like she'd be offended. It's only a matter. Of, yeah, yeah. It's she'd be like, stop telling me that. It's not true, you know. So you can say something all you want so you're blue in the face. It doesn't mean make it true. Your life makes it true or it doesn't. And so that's where this uh, the heightened subjectivity is a little alarming. Because um, it does make, if you crank up the subjectivity and the and the worship primarily is about, like, how much we're going to that and, mm-hmm. and how hard we're going to this, you know, like, it makes people either um, liars or watchers. They mm-hmm. either lie and sing it <laughs> and they know it's not true. Or, like you said, they just kind of watch because they don't want to be untrue to themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but. If we, as pastors of people using these songs, it's not, again, like we actually did a verse by verse study. Mere Worship, one of our students, did a verse by verse study through the whole book of Psalms and looked at the objectivity to subjectivity thing. Really? Um, yeah. What did he yeah,
0: what, what what come up it's with?
1: It's pretty close. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that actually doesn't fit at all. There's stuff about, like, you know, nature. That's not about God objectively, there's stuff about um, and enemies. And idols. There's a lot of stuff if you go through the songs that doesn't fit anywhere in our worship, which should make you ask some questions, too. But we do need both of those things. We need stuff about God and we need our response. It's just that if all we give is the response, I think we alienate a lot of people instead of um, give people opportunity to let's think about God and then trust that he can actually provoke a response of confession or surrender or recommitment, or whatever, you know, um, and the thing I've been talking to some of our guys about in mere worship is like, um, Anne Lamott has this great line, uh, she's too, or hallelujah anyway, I love that, hallelujah anyway, it's such a beautiful, like, that. that's the best call to worship I've heard in a long time, <laughs> right, and I, I love that, because it's like, if the leader isn't really leading the people it's just leading the song then it lets people either uh, worship lie or watch mm-hmm. but if the leader is recognizing like not everybody does surrender all in this room and not everybody does give it all and love the lord with all their heart and soul so like if the worship recognizes that then they can they can sing a song like i surrender all and say you know after they've done it or to set it up don't just sing the song because you have surrendered it all, sing the song because you want to. You know you need to. Don't don't just sing it because you've got it. Mm-hmm. Sing it because you need it. So, you know, don't just raise your hands because you are so surrendered. That's what we normally think. Like I don't want to lift my hands because I know that I haven't been surrendered. But. If the worship pastor would go, don't just do it because you, you're already so faithful. Do it because you're so unfaithful. But you need a faithful God so badly to help you be more faithful. Well, now I can come kneel, not just because I'm humble, but because I'm so proud. But I want to be humble, hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Or I might not even want to be humble, but I know that I I, I want to want that, you know. <laughs> like, hmm. Well, come, Neil, not just because you're so humble, but because you want to be and you need the humility of Christ. So if if the worship pastor is mindful of these things, I think uh, it's like all things become ben- like, permissible. Like they might not be very beneficial, like in the same way that Paul's saying that about other stuff. I think if our mindset is right, we can actually use all kinds of inadequate tools um, and any song is going to be an inadequate tool, right? I mean, it's episodic poetry. It's not the Iliad. It's not Beowulf. Like, even the songs are episodic or lyrical poems, right? They're not these huge things. So lyrical poetry, episodic poetry can only say so much. It, it's going to have to leave huge gaps. So any song is never going to state the whole thing. But we can at least be mindful over time. Wow, you know, we've really pretty much just emphasize all of our favorite things about God. And we've never actually entertained at all these, these trickier parts of the character of God that also need considering and meditation. If we're, if we're not mindful of any of that, I think we'll just go down the stream of culture and I see no evidence to believe that culture is going to take us closer to Scripture when it comes to yep. worship. <laughs>
0: yeah, Look, not not too much there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm curious about going to. I, I I appreciate that you aren't going to kind of like give the A to Z kind of here's how you lead a worship series, like a worship service, and that's not your main focus. I, I I'm st- I am still curious. I I. I've been in, you know, like you, been in many different churches. um, And so I I experienced many different kinds of worship. And there are some, let me just give three general categories. The first two are negative. (laughs) Um, One category is it's just boring. And I know that because 10% of the people are singing to another 40% are kind of moving their mouths. Every other, uh, they're kind of Hmm. standing there. And then the other fifty percent aren't singing. Typically, mostly men. They're not just standing there waiting, mm-hmm. waiting for the sermon. Um, the worship mm-hmm. leaders just jam in like it's almost like they're not even aware that nobody's really <laughs> into this. And then there's always one person in the front row that's like arms up in the air, f- waving a flag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, doesn't realize nobody's with them behind. Him. Uh-huh. So, so I, and I've been—I would say a lot of those yeah. kind of experiences. And I'm like, why? Why are we? What? It, I would. I would. Be, it would be more profitable for me to be out in the hallway talking to maybe a newcomer or something, or you know, like I don't need mm-hmm. to stand here and be. I don't know, and it's hard. and I'm like, well, I just need to. I need to. I need to. I need to get into it. It's not the. And it's like I'm just like forcing words out of my mouth, and half the time the songs are like, I don't. Do I believe that? And you know, mm-hmm. I don't think that's theologically accurate, or I'm not certain. You know, so it's just. It's just. I'm gonna just be honest. It can sometimes be an agonizing experience. Then there's other maybe on the other extreme where it's so rev you up, where I'm just like getting exhausted with how people are just, and I'm not, I'm not at all against emotion. Okay. Please. I, I mean, the sure. essential part of human nature, but it does seem to be just like it's the motivation seems to be, if we can just rev up people as emotionally as we can, they're running around on stage back and forth and just like, come on people. Um, mm-hmm. That, that gets equally annoying. And then there's the, more positive and i and i don't i can't put my finger on what makes it this but it's just i mm. do sense the spirit of god in authentic ways i do feel like i am being drawn into god's presence in a unique corporate manner in space and time um the the worship does seem meaningful there there is a blend of subjectivity objectivity or even let's just say emotion and cognitive mm-hmm. challenges like yeah. there's it's kind sure. of a both and um, mm-hmm. What does do those? I don't. Know, does that resonate with you? Or are you like, yeah, I've been in all three. Oh, years. sure. And how do you create? But how do you create that? Th- how do you? What are are there some just real practical things that a worship leader, worship pastor, can and should mm-hmm. do to cultivate, for lack of better terms, meaningfulness during the singing time at church?
1: Yeah, I do think that there are. So, like I said, it starts with the leader having a life worthy of their calling. So Ephesians four one kind of thing. So that's Okay. Assuming that that's there, yeah. which is a huge assumption. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm yeah. I can't. <laughs> really, I'm not 100% willing to make, but let's say that it's there. So then um, I, I do think there are, are ways that a worship pastor can get a lot more traction within a culture of moving a culture forward in their adoration of God, their surrender, worship, whatever you, whatever you want to say. And some of those some of those steps would involve and include things like um, bringing some historical perspective to this time. Here's why we're doing this, you know, Uh, bringing some biblical handles to these amorphous concepts that we're singing about. So, I mean, the whole conversation about worship is a really tricky one because we end up using words that we don't use in anywhere else in our lives. So we're ascribing glory, like, who talks like that? You know, like, 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 we end up talking in ways that are just foreign to us. So as worship pastors, I think we can give people actual handles than to actually get what we're talking about. So, you know, instead of just um, singing I Surrender All, we keep going back to the song, um, and assuming that they know what an Ebenezer is yeah, And Come that. Thou Founts, like we could actually give people some either historical or scriptural or just personal handles, like, and I think we should we should be balancing all three of those. So, you know, it might be a simple song like uh, "How Great Is Our God." You could give a personal testimony to, you know, I wasn't really feeling this song this week, but. Um, worship's not about what I feel. I want us to confess this, even maybe in defiance of how we're feeling. Let's confess this. So that's one thing. Hmm. Or you could do a biblical, give them a biblical handle of, I mean, the songs from Psalm 104, right? Like uh, the stuff that Psalm 104 says about God, like we're about to sing, sing that today, and no matter where you're at, like it's good for us to sing this because it's about him. Um or on I surrender all, you know. You might you might be a church where um, people lift up holy hands or you might be a church where if you raise up a holy hand, you better ask a holy question. Like no matter what kind of church this is, um, you know, actually, in, in Psalm 28, too, it says, hear the voice of my supplication as I call to you for help. And I lift up my hands to your most holy place. So in Psalm 28, there's this picture of someone lifting their hands saying, Lord, I need you, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So if, if at any point during our time this morning, you just kind of recognize there's part of your life where you still really need God for anything, for mm-hmm. breakthrough, for salvation, provision, healing, whatever, um, I would encourage you to engage your body with that prayer. But some of you are coming in here um, not really like desperate and just barely hanging on. Some of you are coming in um, really strong, and it was a wonderful week, and God's been good to you. Well, there's other psalms for that, for lifting our hands. So Psalm 63, I'll praise you as long as I live. In your name, I'll lift my hands. Mm-hmm. So if, if at any point this morning, you just want to bless God, you want to praise God, uh, well, that's a way that you can do that. Just that posture can be, God, I praise you. You know, you, And so all I'm doing there is saying, here's this experience or this emotion or where you're at, and here's a scripture that they were feeling the same thing. Mm-hmm. Let's practice that scripture in our time together. Or to the, to the kneeling thing, you know, it's like we could go all the way through the Bible, lifting hands, but to switch, um, Psalm 95, come let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our maker. Like, When was the last time you bowed to anything? Mm-hmm. Some cultures, that's normal. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Asian cultures, you bow out of respect. Um, Muslim cultures, they bow over and over while they pray Towards Allah, like isn't it unfortunate that other cultures are way more reverent of their gods than we are with ours? Like, when was the last time you just knelt before God and confessed, like, "You are weak, but He is strong. Like, you don't have what you need; He has everything." It, when was the last time you confess any of that? And worship culture is not going to take you there because um, worship culture is primarily driven by a few engines that are um, charismatic pentecostal and triumphalistic so everything is up and to the right we're going from glory to greater glory we're going to get the breakthrough i'm going to get the miracle all the stuff um and there's a place for that but if it's not countered by the other confession that that sometimes we don't get healing and can our worship survive that too then i think we're just setting people up to be Mm. um good grief i'm disappointed at best but disenchanted Eventually, well,
0: everything you're saying, the common denominator is the worship leader should be talking and teaching and explaining and and because that's one thing like when i it's hard for me would <laughs> and like I want to – real quick caveat. I am so thankful for people that simply say, "Hey, I will serve this church in some way because ninety percent of people don't do anything, so hats off to you who are trying to do something you want to serve you are giving up of your time and and all these things for so sure. um. I would encourage, well, on that note, like when somebody's leading a, a corporate worship and it's kind of like, no, it's just like sing a song and then there's like that awkward like 20-second pause of silence while they're flipping the sheet music or scrolling and then, All right, <laughs> for our next song, you know, boom, and it's just like, I don't know, like, and maybe it's just me, but, but I'm just like, it just feels like, are we worshiping or just singing? three songs in prep for the message wait until, you know, like I, it just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel fluid. doesn't feel natural. I guess it just feels awkward really to me. Um, I mean, so do, I mean, do you think by and large it is essential for a worship pastor um, to be kind of talking up there or being, being able to, yeah, speak to the congregation, explain and do these things or
1: essential might be too strong, but I don't know. Well, dude, in some of the Psalms, you know, you find like superscriptions, right? Like Psalm 103, a Psalm of David. Um, A lot of these superscriptions, they don't think were like original. They got added somewhere along the way. But then a lot of the Psalms, there's no superscription at all. Yeah. Um, I think that sometimes we need to set up what we're doing for it to be coherent. I I think a lot of it is clunky and uh, just incoherent if we're not threading it together elegantly. I just, I really value elegance and beauty. And in the same way that this conversation is just naturally flowing, one thing leads to the next. I think our, our conversation with God should kind of just flow, right? Yeah. Uh, but if it's just like, all right, song one that has nothing to do with song two, which has nothing to do with song three, um, if the songs don't naturally integrate well and make a coherent flow of thought. Mm-hmm. that I think we need to provide those ligaments, right? So you need tendons and you need ligaments and these things to connect. I mean, the, the bones are the big, they're carrying the weight, but without the ligaments, like just the littlest ligament, right? Like, The whole thing is going to be off. So my buddy just, um, one of my friends here in Colorado, we've been skiing a lot together. He just tore his ACL. It's the tiniest (laughs) little ligament and just had surgery on it. We're both like getting older. We need to stay off the terrain park. I broke my knee two months ago. He tore his ACL. So thankfully my knee is healing a lot quicker, but his ACL is going to be nine months, right? So nine months for the tiniest little thing. And the the little things make the biggest difference in worship leadership. Because I think the little things that the leader adds are like the ligaments mm-hmm. to the structural building blocks. You know, the songs or the set are, are carrying the weight. Hopefully there's like liturgical depth and something older than than 20 years old in this. You know, hopefully that's there. But if it's not, and the, if the church is like, we don't do that, we don't do anything, book of common prayer. I remember once I was doing an event with Francis, and it was Francis and David Platt and there was this big multiply event in Birmingham, and there were like hundred, a hundred thousand people watching online or something, right, for a secret church or whatever it was. And I was in the meeting. I was like, wow. I mean, uh, there's people from a hundred different countries or whatever. Like, might be cool to to start the night with a prayer, a collect from the Book, Book of Common Prayer or something, just to hmm. say, like, hey, we're all united in this thing. And Um, it it was not met with a lot of favor. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) let's stick to scripture, you know? And I was like, I I mean, most of the book cover is scripture, but that's okay. Like we can just do that. It's fine. Um, So if if the leader can just pay attention to the ligaments, uh, I I do think they need to be fluent at that. But, you know, I'm used to, my church in Atlanta, it was basically like the the worship leader and the senior leader, and that's it, the only people on stage every week. So I was just very accustomed and comfortable with um, every ligament, whether that's the invocation, the benediction, exhortation, or just like announcements, you know, or yeah. <laughs> setting up tithes and offerings. I'm, I'm real comfortable with all that. At New Life, they've kind of got these wingman figures who come up and they do all that heavy lifting. So it's interesting, at New Life, it's almost like, if I'm doing a lot of talking, it's distracting because there's okay. already so much other. There's so talking. much going. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I just think you just be sensitive and be emotionally intelligent, be self-aware, and then be others-aware, and you're going to be fine. And be and be theologically trained.
0: I've got uh, <laughs> one. Let me see. T- yeah. <laughs> oh, we're coming up on an hour here. Are you doing okay on time? You got a, one more question, or what's I'm, your?
1: Yeah, yeah. I probably need to leave in the next five minutes. All
0: right. Well, uh, I got a bomb of a It'll question. keep it brief. Okay, I got a bomb well, well, of a question. What what's the CCCI? C- L- C- 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 what's C- C- L- I? Yeah. Okay. So here, here I have a concern about that. And let me let me. I have it, more it, than one. Okay, <laughs> um, and maybe I I my, I don't I might not have all my facts straight. From what I understand, um, if you you know every church has to subscribe to CCCI. CCLI, C- CCLI, yeah. CCLI, <laughs> um, and if, Christian uh, if, licensing
1: international. Okay, course, something
0: like that. if you you write a worship song that makes it kind of big and is on there, then for every of the hundreds of thousands of churches that are singing that song, you get. I mean, what could be a ton of money? <laughs> now, from a marketing sure. standpoint. Um, that would seem. It seems like there could be a massive financial motivation. And and as one who makes money off ministry, I'm not against at all. Um, sure. And yet, I'm also very nerve. I'm. I, I. It's that. It's that weird tension of like, am I doing ministry and getting paid for it because it's an outflow of the need for the ministry and gifting and calling and all that, or am I simply doing something because it's financially beneficial? And the more I do it, the more you know. Um, that's always a tough tension. But I am nervous about. Um, the market being driven by that kind of financial motivation, especially in worship songs, so that the one way to really make it big, make it bigger than you could playing in bars the rest of your life or even maybe some small stadiums. <laughs> like you write a song that takes off and is sung by churches. It doesn't need to be theologically sound. It doesn't need to be deep, it could take you two sec, two minutes to write. It doesn't, I think mean, none of this really, the, 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 the great, the common denominator is does, do the masses want to sing it? If they do, you can make a ton of money. My assumption is that could create an environment where you have loads of people clamoring for that runaway worship song, regardless of whether that is an outflow of whether, you know, their, um, pursuit of God or whatever. I don't know. Is anything what I'm describing here, is that, is that, am I, is that accurate and is that, should I be concerned about that?
1: Um. Well, bro, I mean, how, would you, how could you not be concerned, right? <laughs> I mean, yes. The, the system, a friend of mine actually built that system years back. Hmm. And he did it so that people who are gifted and called by God to write songs for the church could do that and um, be able to do it full time. So it was actually built with the noblest yeah. you know, aspirations. Of course, like it's blue, it's ballooned, and now like the amount of money going to these people isn't like enough to make a living on, it's enough to buy a yacht with. And so it's all just shifted. Um, it goes back to character, obviously. But the thing that I would point out about it is it does create a pyramid that just looks a lot like the world systems, where um, you, you know, you can only have so many people at the top. And so within CCLI and the top 100 songs, those are written by, how many songwriters would you guess have contributed to the top 100 songs in CCLI well, think I, about I, around the world? Uh, I'm going
0: to guess maybe like 10 or something or 20. Yeah, you'd be very close.
1: Yeah. I think it's 18. Okay. Um, If you go to the top 200 songs, it goes to like 25. Oh, and of those top 100, hundred percent of them are written by white men. Okay, so we've got huge problems here because what we've been called to be is a royal priesthood, where everybody has a part to play, every nation is dignified, bringing the uniqueness of their cultures. This is what we're supposed to be a part of. But we don't want a royal priesthood. We don't want God to be our king. Give us Saul. So what we have in like worship celebrity is like a pyramid system where there can only be so many people on top. And what that means is there's just you—you've you, never probably even heard songs written from Malawi or Uganda mm. or China. You've probably never even heard one. But I promise you, the churches in those countries are singing Chris Tomlin songs. Mm. Now it's a beautiful thing that what God's doing in one country can go out into others. It's a disgusting thing when the country that's exporting everything is never importing anything. Mm. So we aren't dignifying the nations, we aren't discipling, we're not we're not honoring, we're colonizing them. <laughs> we're just sending them our stuff. And it's heaven will not be like that. And the thing that's heartbreaking about CCLI, like, and again, it's easy for me to poke. Holes in it because I've never my royalty checks are basically invoices. They basically tell me what I still owe. It's like <laughs> I was a bad debt, okay? <laughs> but I have lots of good friends who they make a full they make they make their full salary off of those royalty statements. Um, if those resources, just like any other resources, are being used to raise other people up and to give other people power and to give other people a platform. That's what I see Jesus doing when, when he has all authority in heaven and earth. He's using it to lift others up and to empower others. The, you know, the only problem that I have with any of that pyramidal system, aside from philosophically, it's opposed to the priesthood uh, of, of every high place being brought down and every low place being brought up, um, aside from that, the only issue I have is all that resource. Um, isn't going for others and to lift others up. Like, I think every year, those CCLI numbers should be more and more reflective of a multinational church, a multi-ethnic church, a global church, where everyone is bringing their um, their contribution. That's what I see in Revelation, is that's the consummation of this whole thing. Not um, everyone singing... 18 people's songs like I promise there's not just 18 anointed songwriters in the world Mm -hmm. writing songs for the church It's just our system has only honored that and then it it kind of self-perpetuates,
0: right?
1: So at 10,000 followers what we're actively trying to do (laughs) We're not trying to dismantle that pyramid or anything, but we're just trying to do a whole different thing Mm -hmm. and we're trying to empower hundreds of people to write songs for their churches And we're trying to tell them, look, if you're if you're counting on this to pay for your son's college, um, go play the lottery. That's a better investment, you know. (laughs) But if if you will just recognize there's such beauty in this craft of writing a song for your church and and such an opportunity to shift the culture in your community by creating uh, artifacts. So songs or sermons, whatever that that your community adopts and adheres to and celebrates then you're going to see so much fruitfulness long term that it's going to be more than worth it. You know, the, the last thing I'll say about any of this is, like, um, the way that songs work is, it's like movies. Like, hits, it's hit-driven. We need yeah. the song to go to number one, and then over time it will just slide down the rankings until it's just kind of forgotten. I, I would be curious to see, I haven't done a study on this, I wish somebody would, but, like, the, the, the speed at which, the alacrity at which a hit goes to a forgotten song so everyone sings it how quickly these days um is no one singing it because it it wasn't built uh to be able to stand up to hundreds of listenings or years of singing it was it's just kind of built like our iphones like awesome when it comes out and in three years you're gonna have to get the new one you know Mm. Um, that that is new Again, historically through the church, there's there's not like thousands, thousands of songs that were really big hits, and then they just dissipated. And that's not how Jesus ever portrays the kingdom coming. The, Jesus uses pictures like planting seed in the ground or leaven in dough. It's like songs need to be explosive, but explosions make a big mark, and then they just dissipate to nothing, mm-hmm. where seeds and leaven... They're so small, they're easy to miss, but over time they start, they shift everything, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I think that the whole system, I love that there's, I mean, what an, what an incredible gift, you know, it's, as a songwriter to be able to make any money from what we do for the church, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. But if the character stuff isn't there, and why would it be? These leaders haven't been formed. Um, and if there's not a perspective that, Everything God gives us is not just for us, it's it's to give away. Then I think the pyramid's just gonna, well, it's the same thing as wealth in America, right? It's <laughs> trickled down. It, economics is a joke. Like the rich just get richer <laughs> and the poor get poorer. And that's happening in the church too. Unfortunately, that means that I, I think we're missing out on the treasure that God has instilled in the different nations of the world because. You know uh, how great is our God? Uh, sorry, how great thou art is the second most beloved hymn of all time, behind Amazing Grace. Um, well, how great thou art was not written in English. It's not an American song. Hmm. It was written in Swedish. Uh, it's called Ostor Gud in the 1800s, and then it was so beloved in Sweden that it got translated into German, then Russian, and eventually into English. Oh, wow. And I just mentioned that because uh, I can't even imagine church without how great that art, like it was part of i mean we sang a lot as a kid, you know it's still it's uh, still up there, and um I just can't help but wonder what songs are we missing because we're not paying attention to what God's doing in the other countries we're only exporting what god's done in ours
0: we We don't have time, but I would love maybe when I have you back on, <laughs> we could talk about how. What can we do to tap into and and do more importing than exporting from other um, countries? I've got I've got a friend who's um he's uh, Nepal, he's in Nepal he's Nepalese yeah. and uh, may yeah. off the chart musician dude and him and three other friends in Nepal and like the jungles in Nepal wrote a worship album it's all in Nepalese Nepali um I think they have one English song wow. it's it's beautiful beautiful I mean just I'm like. How can we like, but this obviously will never make it in, but like, is there something we can do to open up some of those floodgates? Um, Because music is rich. Music is such a deeper part of many other cultures. I mean, it is of every culture, but other cultures, I feel like it's even more just intertwined with so much more depth and meaning and cultural significance and spiritual significance. It's like, man, we're like you said, we are so missing out. But I don't. I, if someone said, "Okay, well, how do we get that?" I'm like, I, "Man, that's that's I don't know." I'm sure you got some thoughts on that. But you gotta go, man. I'm probably keeping you late. <laughs> I do. Well,
1: I, I mean, I just I can hit that real quick. Like, yeah. um, there's two things we can do. One, we can pay attention and listen to what are the songs that God, that God is birthing in other countries and other languages. And you might not understand anything that's saying. That's fine. There's you don't understand what a classical piece is doing to you either, you know? Right. Like there are levels to you that are sub-cerebral <laughs> and it can still affect you. And so I've done this, like I, I actually met with um, the Christian Music Publishers Association. This is a global organization that basically uh, any country that has like a big infrastructure of worship songs, the heads of those countries all meet every year. And so a few years ago I met with those guys to try to lobby this case, like guys, um, where are the songs from Italy and mm-hmm. where are the songs from uh, Denmark? You know, and so I'm like, send me those songs because if we will pay attention to those and then we'll learn the craft of not song translation but song reimagination, you can't translate a song, there's too much linguistic stuff going on yeah. that has a motive purpose, right? So you have to actually rewrite the song in English. But I've done this with probably 10 or 15 songs in the last five or 10 years that were native Danish songs, Mm. Swedish songs, um, one from, uh, I don't remember where in Africa, but I'll hear these songs that I've never heard anything like that. Mm. We've never sung anything like that in my church. Mm. And I'll get in touch with the writer and go, could you and I work together on an English version of this song? Mm. It's not going to be word for word. It's not even going to be line for line. We're just going to try to make the heart of the song, work well in English, so that my church could sing them. So I've done that with lots of different songs, and those, I'm telling you, those were some of my church's favorite songs to sing in Atlanta. That's so cool. That's so awesome. So that's a start. Yeah. I mean, if we would pay attention, and then we have to actually learn how to, what makes these songs work in those languages, What, what would make them work in English. So that's hard work. I pitched that to all these publishing heads. Uh, about 20 people in Amsterdam a few years ago, hoping that I would every year they would send me their 10 best worship songs. Yeah, because uh, I was like, We've trained hundreds of people how to write songs, technically, how to get in there in the weeds. And I was like, We will crank out English, ver- like great English versions of these songs with the original writers if you'll send me the songs. And nobody ever sent me their songs. <laughs> I think they were like, "Oh, we'll yeah. take that from here. Thanks very much." Aaron, where
0: can people find you and your work? I mean, a- AaronKeys.com, right? Uh, is that your made website? Oh, or? I guess I still
1: have that website. I haven't looked at that in about a decade. Um, you do? Well, I I sure I'm does. on it right now. Aaron
0: Aaron Keys. Oh. Uh, a- looks like yeah. Looks like for some reason I'm seeing monkey, but it's Aaron Keys because the last O N. Oh Yeah, A A R O N Keys K E. E-Y-E-S. I guess if you're listening to the podcast, you, you know what his name looks like. Um, and then uh, where else?
1: Yeah, worship.school is the 10,000 Fathers website okay. where people can find out more about that. We have new classes that start twice a year, in the fall and in the spring. Okay. So just this last week, we had about 75 worship pastors in from around the world um, for three different intensives. That was really cool. So worship.school, if they're interested in finding out more about the deep dive, that is – I mean, it's, it's intense. It's amazing. Um, but then Mirror Worship, so M-E-R-E, mirrorworship.com, if they're just looking to kind of put their toes in the water or they want to have more conversations kind of like this in a community of like-minded people um, where we're all kind of growing together, Mirror Worship is is the last place I would say to check out.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, bro, for being on uh, Theology and Rob. We got to do this again very soon. <laughs> Thanks, Preston. I loved it, man. Right. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. Take care.